You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back to National Security Law Today, the official podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're here with another installment in our series celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage by highlighting women's achievements in national security. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jill Goldenzeal to the podcast. She is a professor at Marine Corps University Command and Staff College, uh, where she teaches international law, leadership, law of armed conflict, and national security law to mid-career U.S. and foreign military officers. Uh, In addition, she is also a senior affiliated scholar at Fox Leadership International and Partnership for Effective Public Administration and Leadership Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. She earned her PhD and AM in government at Harvard, her JD from NYU, and her AB from Princeton. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. I am really excited to have a classmate from my own alma mater here, although you have so many to choose from, to be honest. Thank you. But as you know, I bleed orange and black. So my first is my is the closest to my heart. Tiger, tiger, tiger. <laughs> rah, rah, rah. <laughs> All right, well, let's get right into it. Okay, now let's get serious. All right. Um, Jill, here's the thing. So you're a woman. You've never served in uniform. So you're now teaching at the Marine Corps University as a civilian. Are you getting any respect? How's that going? Yes, yes, very, very much so. It's been a really fabulous experience. It was a total deep dive. I saw the job on the Belfer Center listserv back in 2015, 2016. And one of my best friends in graduate school had been a Marine. And he served four tours in Iraq, including at Fallujah, and came to start a PhD program. This was in 2006, 2007, right at the height of the Iraqi Civil War. And I had very little contact with service members beforehand, a running buddy in high school a bit, but I had fewer misconceptions about the military than just hadn't really given it any thought. And he talked so passionately about his nation building work in Iraq and how it was the most important thing he would ever do. And when his commanding officer called, and this was, again, right at the height of the Iraqi Civil War, he talked about how the pull was just so strong to go back because of the brotherhood that he felt in the Marines. And I thought, you know, are, are you crazy? I mean, this is, it's nuts out there right now. And he said, no, you, you really have to understand the significance of the work that you're doing. And it really made me think very, very differently um, about what the what the military does. And so when the job came over to the listserv, I thought, I can, I can work for the Marine Corps. I know from all of my conversations with my friends who came to visit me in Jordan, and we traveled to all the military and stuff there. I know that I can work for these people. They're going to respect me. They're going to understand what and they did and I think it's a great credit to them that they would hire a human rights lawyer um, and add a module on migration and security to their curriculum because I'm there and allow me to participate in the negotiations of the over the global compact for migration while I was working there it really says a lot about their respect for what I do, even though it's most people don't think, or as I was asked when I was at the UN, wow, you work for the Marine Corps? 
they would hire somebody like you. They would hire a human rights lawyer. And I said, yes, let me tell you how great they are. So they definitely respect my work. And then as far as being a woman, I, I was definitely concerned the Marine Corps doesn't exactly have the best reputation in the popular media when it comes to their treatment of women. They were the last of the services to integrate women into co uh, combat units, among other things. And it's been a fantastic experience. I won't say it's been perfect, but I would say that I get as much, if not more, respect than I would in the civilian work because I'm considered to be part of the team. And that's what I'm respected for, regardless of gender. That's um, really, really exciting to hear. Uh, as a veteran, I'm, I'm glad that things haven't changed so much since I was in uniform and that you are getting the respect that you obviously deserve. Um, so let's talk a little bit about why you deserve that respect. You're an expert in the Middle East. And I wonder how your interaction with your students, right, the Marines that you're teaching uh, and, and other officers, actual boots on the ground, um, how those interactions have shaped your views on the US's involvement uh, uh, there? It's really a surreal experience to be teaching the people I do because I spent so much time studying the Iraq war. So my dissertation was on Iraqi refugees. I started studying this in 2006, 2007, right at the height of the Iraq civil wars. Iraqis were really spilling by the hundreds of thousands, not millions, into throughout the region, but especially over the Jordanian border. And the, what I like to say when I introduce myself to the students is, well, you and certainly my colleagues who are lieutenant colonels who have been in the military for 20 years or more, were over in Iraq involved in the events that created refugees. I was on the other side of the Jordanian border dealing with the fallout and in the Syrian border as well. And the, I've lost count at this point of the number of events that I've studied and it turns out that I work with somebody or have taught somebody who has been personally involved in those events during the U.S.'s involvement in Iraq. And it really, for me, put a very human face on things. First of all, on the migration issue, but secondly, really on the law of war issues. And I've had some really tough conversations about the complicated decisions that people face in the heat of a type of moment that I can barely imagine. And it's really helps me understand and look at my work in a way that I have never, uh, that I, I can't look at it the same way ever again. As far as the U.S.'s involvement, it's, uh, so at Command and Staff College, students are training to be on staffs and future battalion commanders, and we focus on operational planning. And the first thing that struck me was the detail the level of detail of the plans that they create in a week's time, because we only have about a week for these operation planning exercises. I mean, there's a medical file this thick that somebody needs to look into to determine, you know, what insects are there that could potentially cause diseases and how to be, how to be able to fight them. And this, this is in the schoolhouse, right, for, for planning exercises. And I've had people say to me, well, we didn't have a plan going into Iraq. No, we had a plan. We had plans going into Iraq. 40% of our students and faculty were pulled out in January and February of 2003 to plan for the events of, of March. So we had incredibly detailed plans, a lot more so than I see in the operational planning exercises we have. What we didn't have a plan for is what to do afterwards. And it became very clear that 
the uh, it, it's well known that there was lack a lack of internet agency coordination during the Iraq War. The depth of that has become really apparent to me, and as I've worked at Marymount University and the need for a better whole of government approach to tackling national security issues has become acutely important to me and acutely clear during my time there. So it seems like you've gotten a very well-rounded picture um, just from all sides uh, of the conflict and um, what we can, what lessons we can learn from. The, I can't say it's been that well-rounded because I've never been in combat and I always have to caveat what I say to my students. They look, I've never served in uniform. I've never been in combat. I'm not going to pretend to know the types of decisions you have to make in the short time that you have to make them in extremely difficult life, life or death situations. What was reassuring to me is that my academic research was relevant and that I haven't come into anything that's been acutely and absolutely wrong yet, which is good. It's wonderful that what we study in the ivory tower at 30,000 feet can be made so relevant to the people with literally with their boots on the ground. What is shocking to me and, and that I am working to rectify is the fact that we don't do it very well and as much as we should. The people at the 30,000 foot level are not actually talking to the people with the boots on the ground. And the, they literally don't know who to, how to call each other, how to talk to each other. And that's something I think we desperately need to fix. So you're also quite a prolific writer on topics we're very interested in in this podcast. For example, you've written about how U.S. law actually hinders our ability to counter disinformation campaigns, specifically with relation to the Russian interference in our 2016 election. What are your thoughts on the problem and proposals for reform? So I've written an article called The New Fighting Words, How U.S. Law Hinders Our Ability to Fight Information Warfare. And I wrote it with a wonderful Navy JAG, who was a UVA law student, very uh, precocious UVA law student at the time that we were working on this article together. And we, uh, what inspired me to write this article was an article in the Washington Post that I read on Christmas Day 2017. It was called something like, Kremlin's Rage Across the Internet While Washington Fiddled in Committee, or something like that. And it talked about, among other things, how there had been a State Department-led program to find influencers online who were spreading disinformation and effectively target them with what's legally called counter speech with the U.S. side of things, or we hope the true side of things. And the State Department lawyers said, no, you can't do this because you would need to guarantee that you're not collecting and utilizing Americans' First Amendment data, because the Privacy Act prohibits them from doing that, prohibits uh, government agencies except law enforcement in specific situations, and CIA as well, from collecting and keeping a file on U.S. citizens' First Amendment data. Any contact between foreigners and U.S. citizens, even if the State Department was only looking at foreigners' data, would involve collecting U.S. persons' data. So the program was nixed. 
and I read this and I thought, this is nuts. Now, put aside the question because I know I, I ran into someone from the L who said, but the State Department shouldn't be involved in this. Anyway, put aside the question of whether the State Department should be the right agency for a second. From a legal perspective, we talk all the time about the, pu the public square. Right? And how the John Stuart Mill based idea of how you know, let anybody come into the public sphere and talk and then the truth will eventually outweigh the lies. All right, so if we can't target, the US government can't target with counter speech online influencers, then effectively the First Amendment can't be used to defend itself in precisely the way that all of our First, First Amendment jurisprudence assumes that it could. So I started, I thought to, to myself, well, somebody has to write about this. And so I, so I did, basically. And I had this wonderful co-author join, join out along the way. And um, we looked very much at this problem and said, well, the first, the first problem is that the Supreme Court is looking at the internet the wrong way, or they're looking at social media the wrong way. So in the Packingham cases, the Justice Kennedy famously said the Supreme Court is the new public square, or not the Supreme Court, excuse me. The uh, social media is the new public square, the internet is the new public square. The problem is that it's not because social media involves echo chambers. Social media involves a situation where speech lingers on the internet long after it's heard. Social media involves this fire hose of information, which is very much part of the Russian disinformation campaign, that is much more information that could possibly come at you at once if you were actually in the public square. So it's just not the same thing. And we say, well, we have to start regulating, looking at social media, first of all, legally for what it is, which is something very different than a public square, and regulate it accordingly. And we tackle the problem of false speech being being legal, I think as it should be from a free speech perspective, uh, because it can lead to the truth. But we talk about how the First Amendment can also and should also be used to defend itself. So we talk about criminalizing reckless false speech designed to violate the integrity of the electoral process and creating a very high and clear intent standard for that to be the case. And there's some precedent for that, uh, that speech designed to violate the integrity of the electoral process might be a category of speech that is, or that can be regulated under First Amendment law. But the basic idea behind it is that political speech is the most protected speech, has the most protected most protection under the First Amendment itself. So there could very well be a compelling state interest narrowly tailored in having the U.S. government criminalize a very small, narrow category of reckless false speech that is, that is intended by the speaker to violate this prized First Amendment right, political speech, of which voting, I think, is the is the greatest expression, voting itself, of course, being very prized in the Constitution. So that's really, I think, the key finding of the article. And then we also go through a number of laws, Foreign Agents Registration Act, which we say should be, uh, should be enforced more effectively, 
the various surveillance laws and the Privacy Act and talk about how they can be reformed to enable a better whole of government approach to fighting electoral interference, to, um, excuse me, fighting disinformation. And uh, the, the animating idea behind all of it is there's this very thorny problem of protecting national security and also protecting civil liberties at the same time. So we need to find a right, the right balance. We need to have many safeguards in the system to preserve the original intent of the Privacy Act and ensure that Americans don't feel censored if their First Amendment data needs to be accessed. But we also need to enable a better whole of government approach to accessing this information for the specific purpose of protecting the integrity of our electoral process. Wow, that's interesting. And just today, uh, Jill, I noticed that there was some legislation that was specifically directed to the provision of the communication or the amendment to the Communications Decency Act, which gives internet service providers um, you know, shelter from lawsuits for libelous false uh, information that appears on their platforms, um, but also uh, gives them the right to remove that stuff uh, without fear of lawsuit or censure or anything else, um, if they decide that it is false. And obviously that's a challenge for anybody given the um, avalanche and millions and billions of messages that are yeah. out there. So that, that's a really fascinating piece. You've written some other things, though, that we've talked about with other guests recently. Um, and in Lawfare, um, you've written about Chinese military strategy. And we're not talking about Lawfare, the platform, folks. <laughs> <laughs> not the blog. Because everybody reads Lawfare. But what, what is Lawfare by itself, not the platform? And what are the Ch Chinese doing? And what are we doing in response? Unpack that very carefully, especially for millennials. Sure. So I have another article coming out in Cornell Law Review this fall called Law is a Battlefield, the U.S., China, and Global Escalation of Lawfare. And I argue in that that the U.S. needs to develop a more comprehensive lawfare strategy to effectively combat our adversaries who really have used law as a weapon of war, I think a lot more effectively than we have. Part of it is that they're able to uh, because they have more centralized control. They don't have the separation of, of powers that we have. They don't have all of the laws that they need to, all of the laws and bureaucracy that they need to get around. The Chinese military and the Chinese government, for example, are basically one. But also we just haven't conceived of law as a weapon of war in the same way that the Chinese have, who have law lawfare uh, dating in their military doctrine back as far as the 1960s. So I define the basic definition of lawfare is the use of law as a, as a weapon of war. And I try to come up with a more opera operationalizable definition of lawfare in my article about use of law as a weapon of war to achieve a specific military, a specific strategic operational or tactical objective against a specific enemy. Because I think we have to have an operationalizable definition in order to be able to act on it as the government or as the US military. 
And I talk about three specific types of lawfare that China has engaged in against the United States, and which we, I don't think, have adequately responded to. And the first is China's use of maritime militia, People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia, which is effectively a I'll call it a paramilitary organization. Uh, they are, um, there are ships that are part of local maritime organizations that are contracted out to the Chinese government part-time effectively. So not as part of their other commercial duties. And they're effectively fishing boats, except that they're not fishing. They have no nets. And they're performing effectively as part of the Chinese Coast Corps. Coast Guard. So some of the things they do are search functions. They have participated in the Chinese island building programs in the South China Sea, the, the dredging that's involved, the reclamation that's involved. Uh, they're involved in intelligence collection as well, and other types of traditional military or, or Coast Guard activities. But there's some plausible deniability there because they are civilian fishing boats and they may, may or may not be operating on the Chinese payroll at any given time. So this creates a law of war, pro, uh, a law of war problem for the United States if they were ever to get into say conflict with some of these, some of these boats particularly in a hypothetical armed conflict with China, but even now. So to give you an example of what they do. So there's a Philippine island known as Pagasa, and there were, I believe, 300 fishing boats that swarmed around this very small island with only, I think, a few hundred inhabitants on a single day last year. So this is extremely intimidating. And... I've talked to some friends in the Navy who tell me fishing boats are effectively a nightmare when you're on a naval vessel, because if you run into any of them, not only are you involved in a major diplomatic incident, but, and potential loss of life, obviously, but you're causing major damage to a boat. Navy vessels would be give way vessels um, in this. They would have to give way to civilian craft. So the civilian craft is, speeding up like it's going to ram into you or maneuvering in an erratic way, you have to respond with, with your much larger craft. So this causes significant problems for U.S. and also allies operations in the South China Sea as it is now. And we also see situations where these fishing vessels are encroaching on the territory of some of our allies and partners in the region. The second area is uh, encapsulated by the Philippines-China arbitration, which I, when I first heard about this, um, I knew that I had to write this article immediately. So uh, China engaged in this island building program in the South China Sea, including in, uh, in areas that the Philippines claimed as, as their own. And the Philippines, obviously unable or certainly un unwilling, but really unable to fight China, at least without our help. So the Philippines um, filed an arbitration uh, in the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, and the decision came down in 2016 under the, and they filed this under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. 
And the dispute itself was not about sovereignty over particular areas of the South China Sea, but about China's island building program and the resulting environmental damage and also harassment of fishermen and Philippines, uh, Filipino personnel, uh, including by some of these maritime militia craft that I talked about earlier. And um, effectively the international, or sorry, excuse me, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The, in the Hague needed to decide what these various features are were in the South China Sea. So were they islands capable of sustaining human life and therefore China could potentially claim them as their territory? Or were they rocks or were they reefs or were they some were they low tide elevations or something else? And so this had very large implications for sovereignty. It was a brilliant legal strategy huge implications for sovereignty, even though the court didn't have the jurisdiction to decide on sovereignty itself. So the Philippines was clearly using lawfare here. They were filing a case to achieve what they could not achieve militarily. What was really interesting was China's response. China refused to participate, first of all, but then they release something that very, a position paper that very suspiciously looks like a legal brief. It included legal arguments, it was written in the form of a legal brief, and the court itself ended up considering this, because they bent over backwards to really hear China's side of the story, they ended up considering this as if it were China's position. China also launched before, during, and after the decision a massive international media campaign in order to denounce the legitimacy of the tribunal itself, which it said was against international law because the Philippines hadn't pursued negotiations closely enough, and also to then eventually denounce the decision after they lost, which they did. In July of 2016, there was a, the court announced a sweeping victory for the Philippines, and China's response to that was first of all to announce it and you should you can see this on youtube and it's really amusing they put up a massive video billboard in times square telling their side of the story about how the south china sea had been chinese for hundreds of years and uh denouncing this decision including uh misusing uh the a clip from a british politician who then said later, wait a minute, you, you misused my words and misconstrued them entirely. I totally support the arbitration. And um, then they continue to denounce the decision and they have warned in very strict terms other countries like Vietnam and Indonesia from pursuing similar arbitrations or even from relying on the terms of the arbitration in filings before the UN, for example. So it's clear that China is, is scared of this. So the question is, you know, why? And it really seems to be the fact that China has thought of lawfare as part of their own military and political strategy for so long. And then the third type of lawfare I talk about is US lawfare against Huawei, which I think we're actually seeing similar arguments being made by TikTok in their lawsuit against the US since I, since I wrote the article. And what we saw was uh, when the National Defense Authorization Act effectively banned the US government and military from contracting with Huawei, Huawei sued in United States District Court 
and said, this ban is unconstitutional because it constitutes a bill of attainder and it violates our due process rights. And most experts thought this was absolutely laughable as an argument. So then question arises, they did have very good lawyers on it, but the question arises, okay, well, if this is laughable and everybody pretty much knows that Huawei's not gonna win, why are they doing this? And the answer seems to be that filing this lawsuit and then losing provides this information function for global audiences, but particularly the Chinese domestic audience where they can say, look, the U.S. is flouting its own laws. They are violating their own constitution through this ban. And look, their courts are you know, so corrupt because they're going along with this. We see really similar arguments in both the extradition uh, trial of um, Huawei's CFO, Sabrina Meng. She made very similar arguments in uh, her hearings in Canada on this issue about it being unconstitutional under Canadian law for Canada to extradite her to the US. She lost. And then also we see TikTok making very similar arguments about, about due process. And it's a, some analysts think that TikTok's case is a little bit stronger than Huawei's was. I'm not so sure, but what's really interesting to me is that they are making very similar arguments, and I think this is more about lawfare than the lawsuit. Well, can I ask a quick follow-up question about this? Um, I wonder, just, so the, these are immensely complicated cases, right? So you have, like, these international tribunals, and you have, like, the you know, the interaction between the states themselves. Um, what, what are, you know, we, we also have kind of a complicated relationship with China and the Philippines at the moment. Um, and there are some discussion about, you know, how closely the U.S. itself hews to the rule of law. How are some of our domestic um, challenges uh, resonating in some of these, like, foreign cases and in, in, in like, the foreign uh, way that, these um, law law uh, these legal cases are being approached. So that's really interesting because when Secretary Pompeo and this is since I since I wrote the article, I need need to update. But um, Secretary Pompeo came out over the summer and said China's China's island building program and their actions in the South China Sea is manifestly illegal. And this surprised a lot of observers because it was the Trump administration invoking international law to justify our actions and our foreign policy against China. And this is an administration that certainly in their actions against the International Criminal Court and other, uh, other statements they've made about international law is no great lover of international law. And this is, was the strongest statement, certainly from the highest ranking U.S. official that any that anyone had made uh, in this or the prior administration, as far as I know, uh, in support of the the arbitration itself. As far as what's going on here, um, I think that there's for anyone interested in using what any uh, adversaries of the U.S. interested in using what I call information lawfare, the information function of 
of law in order to bolster one's own political or military position or to attack an enemy's. Anyone interested in using information lawfare against us can have a field day with a lot of what's been going on in the United States. And there's plenty of fodder out there from adherence to both political parties on the on contested legality of the actions of this administration that our adversaries can play with. And uh, that certainly as a scholar is frightening. As an American, it's also very frightening. Okay, thank you for all of those answers, especially referencing all of the great work that you've done in your law review articles, which we're going to be sure to link in the notes to the show. But you're approaching many of these issues, not just as an academic, but as a practitioner. So I was hoping you could tell us about your work on the Global Compact for Migration, which was done through the Academic Council on the United Nations System. Yes, so starting in 2016, I was involved in the First of all, the uh, creation of the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants which at the UN, which spearheaded the process to create two global compacts, the Global Compact for Migration and the Global Compact for Refugees. So for about two years, I was at the UN approximately every other month from anywhere from a week until a week to a, a, day, a day to a week. And I was working on the language of the Global Compact, which would say what potential policy issues were involved from the perspective of the Academic Council and the UN system. I was there in my personal capacity working with this organization that is a group of academics that study the United Nations from all over the world. And the director at the time had seen my article proposing a displaced persons convention, a new agreement to protect people who are displaced by war and conflict that goes beyond the 1951 Refugee Convention. And he interviewed me for a podcast. And then when the opportunity arose to have the organization send somebody to work on the Global Compact for Migration, he called me and I was thrilled. I said, I've always wanted to be an academic whose work had relevance in the real world. And I wrote this proposal thinking it would be crazy and people would roll their eyes and think I was idealistic and no one would read it. And now you're telling me I get to the, get to go to the UN and work on something similar. Amazing. <laughs> I did. And I eventually got to speak at the conference to adopt the global compact for migration in Marrakesh, in 2018, uh, the, it was, I was there with speaking with Angela Merkel and some, a number of other world leaders, and it was a really, really phenomenal experience to be able to be one voice contributing to that process. And now I'm somewhat involved in the implementation and follow-up as well, which is great. Thanks so much for sharing that. So uh, we'd love to know, uh, just uh, as you know, uh, one of the major reasons that we do this podcast is to inspire young lawyers to join us in national security law. So can you tell us about um, your recent article, What's on Your CV of Purpose? It was, I was really uh, excited to find it um, as we were preparing for the podcast, um, and I thought specifically about our young lawyers cohort. Um, like, talk about it and tell us how this philosophy motivates your work. 
This was an article that I wrote on LinkedIn and also for the blog Balkanization, which is a law professor blog where I'm very privileged to write. What I do is I, well, I update my CV every spring, summer, as most academics do. And as I did this a few years ago, I realized to myself, wow, the best memories of this year, the most important and meaningful things to me about this year are not on my CV. Most of us became academics because something inspired us, usually a teacher or some kind of research that made us want to write our own. And my teaching evaluations might be on my CV, my publications might be on, on my CV, but the inspiration is, and the, the people that I've inspired or who've, who've inspired me are not there. So I started making a CV, a CV of purpose, a CV of those accomplishments that I'm most proud of that are not on my actual CV. And I did it both for myself and also as a gratitude exercise to remember to reach out and thank those people who have really been inspirational in my own life and nurture some of those relationships that maybe I hadn't had time to do over the course of the year. So I put things on it like, well, thank you notes I got from students, but those all go actually, the physical thank you notes also go in a box anyway that I keep on my desk. And also it was really meaningful to me the last year when a senior scholar in my field pulled me aside at a conference and said, whenever I see your name come across the listserv and an article with a new article that you've written, I always read it no matter what it's on because I know it's going to be good. And a student telling me that it was really good for her to see me navigating work-life balance, work and family because she didn't have anybody in her life like that. And it was going to be really important to her to have a role model like that to follow as she got older and started to make some of these work and family decisions for herself. And that's, that's why I'm here. I mean, that's why I decided to go into this profession because of moments like that and people's like that, people like that, students and mentors. And so I started writing all of this down both in order to remember to pay it forward, but also to help motivate myself through the tough days in academia. There, there are a lot of them. There's a lot of rejection that goes into, into academia with grants and publications that don't get, don't get put in journals. But also we, we write in our basements, often in our pajamas, not knowing if anybody will ever read about or care about our work. So to be able to have that reminder is something that I think is, is really important. Yeah, and Jill, let me just say this. We're all working in our pajamas in our basements yeah. now. So I want you to know, I feel the sorority. This is true. This is true. <laughs> um, and uh, in, as far as work-life balance, I'm just happy to say I was able to collapse a, uh, a dog cage for a 100-pound dog um, and move enough of my family pictures that it wasn't entirely obvious, although they are back there. It's always a balance, right? You know, it's an interesting thing. You've really accomplished a lot, frankly, uh, for a person of your age. It's, it's startling. So, um, it, and I, we can't possibly get into all of it now, but when you've accomplished this much, what are you looking at as the next thing for you? I haven't written my book yet, and I'm really excited to get moving on that. So for forever, I've been planning to write a book about refugees and migration. And at first it was a book on how we need a new agreement to help protect people who are displaced, but have, are not protected by the Refugee Convention. But then I 
put that aside because I was actually working on such an agreement with the Global Compact for Migration. But now it's time to crystallize some of this knowledge that I've gained from Marine Corps University, working at Marine Corps University, and also from the Global Contact, uh, Compact process and put it into a book. So I'm writing a book about how politicization of refugee and migration crises actually harms our national security. And that's my big project right now. And then in terms of smaller projects, I'm working on a couple of articles on reforming intelligence law and also on how the International Court of Justice works. And that's continuing really my work on lawfare. I compiled a data set with a wonderful team of RAs from several local universities. And I'm looking at all of the cases in the International Court of Justice and then later the Permanent Court of Arbitration and the WTO and it, uh, the International Tribunals and Law of the Sea as well to look at patterns of who's suing who and why are smaller states winning against larger, greater powers under what conditions are states likely to file and likely, likely to win. So I'm crunching all of those numbers now and hopefully we'll have more on that soon. Well, Jill, it's been amazing. We really enjoyed having you. And when you have your, when you have your books, books finished uh, and your articles, we would love to welcome you back. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks. It was great to be here. This is probably a good time to emphasize a point that we try to make, which is we're all here in our individual capacity, including Jill. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna share a link to your website, Jill, which includes your full bio and your list of publications, which are um, incredibly impressive. And we're also going to hyperlink the Global Compact on Migration for additional context around that conversation. All right, thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. We're here for you. We're trying to keep you uh, informed about everything that is going on in national security law, COVID or no COVID. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. We want to hear from you too. You're going to see some updates to our podcast based on listener comments, starting with this video format that we're just rolling out uh, uh, on uh, Dr. Jill's um, excellent advice. Uh, so keep your feedback coming via Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And as Elise has said before, I'll say it again, our weekly disclaimer, the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacities, not on behalf of any government agency or company. And we will be back next week with more content. Please be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though we are apart. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Thank you.